This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, November 9th, 2023. I'm Caleb Brown. Freedom of speech is under constant threat in the United States, so we should understand as clearly as we can what the right of free speech delivers to us and what extending that right to everyone demands of us. Nadine Strawson is author of the new book, Free Speech, What Everyone Needs to Know. We spoke earlier this week. One of the things that you note in your book is sort of helping readers reconcile uh, the areas where the Supreme Court has been perhaps at cross purposes in its opinions regarding freedom of speech. If you just listen to the internet or casual court watchers, you you would get the impression that this Supreme Court has been fairly consistent over the last few decades when it comes to freedom of speech. So where are those tensions? The Supreme Court since the mid-20th century has become increasingly speech protective, extending the protection of the First Amendment to more and more topics and perspectives that historically have been subject to restrictions. So, for example, until the mid-20th century, the Supreme Court even allowed hate speech, speech that conveyed discriminatory attitudes, stereotypical views on bases such as race and ethnicity. The Supreme Court upheld such a law. Uh, That changed in the second half of the 20th century. To take another example, the Supreme Court for many years held that so-called commercial speech, speech that had an economic purpose, uh, including providing information about price and other details as part of a commercial transaction, the Supreme Court until shockingly recently held that that is absolutely excluded altogether from First Amendment protection. But again, beginning in the second half of the 20th century, the Supreme Court uh, has pretty much equated commercial speech with speech with other uh, subject matter in terms of being presumptively protected. Uh, To make a long story short, Caleb, there is now only one exception One topic, one subject matter that the Supreme Court continues to hold that solely because of the disfavored, disapproved of nature of that topic, speech on that topic is subject to less First Amendment protection. And given America's puritanical heritage, your audience may not be surprised to learn that that most controversial topic is sex. And so we still have a so-called obscenity exception to the First Amendment, which the Supreme Court created in 1956. There is no language in the First Amendment free speech clause itself that would indicate that there is an exception for sexual speech. Let me remind the audience that the First Amendment says, Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech or of the press. It doesn't say, except if the speech has certain sexual content. In 1973, the Supreme Court re examined that obscenity exception in light of the intervening jurisprudence, which had become much more speech protective. 
Uh, And by a five to four vote, the court reaffirmed the obscenity exception. Since then, many individual Supreme Court justices all across the ideological spectrum, including arch-conservative Antonin Scalia, of all people, have objected to the obscenity exception, saying it's inconsistent with the rest of Supreme Court jurisprudence, but the court as a whole has never revisited it. There are, to bring a more contemporary example, shortly after the Hamas attack on Israel, there were protests on particularly in college campuses, but elsewhere. But on college campuses, this is most notable for our discussion. And various politicians have said, look, to the extent that you are here in the United States on some sort of visa, you know, I think it was Ron DeSantis saying, if if I'm elected president, I will cancel those visas of people who have been participating in these protests. And and to be clear, sometimes saying some pretty horrific things in these protests. So when we think about the the First Amendment, we think about protecting the freedom of speech. We're talking about protecting speech. So for people who are not U.S. citizens, what does that mean? That's an excellent question. And you've zeroed in on the appropriate text in the First Amendment Free Speech Clause, which doesn't say American citizens are entitled to free speech. It says Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech, which is significant because there are certain other provisions in the Constitution which do provide rights specifically for citizens. For example, uh, there are two clauses that refer to the privileges and immunities of citizens. So presumably the framers made a deliberate determination that our government should be restricted from abridging speech regardless of the identity including the national identity or ethnic background or immigration status of the speaker and in fact that has been the supreme court's consistent holding going back to the 1940s when the court first confronted the issue in fact the first time it confronted the issue the court didn't even flag it as a consideration. It upheld free speech rights of somebody who was a non-citizen in the United States without even remarking on that fact. It was legally irrelevant. And one of the reasons why that approach makes sense, um, Caleb, is a very important general insight about First Amendment freedom of speech, which is that it is for the benefit of not only the speaker, who is seeking to convey information and ideas. It is also for the benefit of audience members, those of us in the United States who choose to hear the ideas and information that the speaker is conveying. That point Mm. that there's a corollary to the freedom of speech, which is the freedom to receive that information. I think it was Nat Hentoff who first made that point so strongly to me years Mm. ago. Now, Now, related to This issue of protest, of minority groups who want to assert themselves or, you know, any any kind of group, any self-selected group that wants to assert their rights and suggest that perhaps they're being mistreated. There is a long history of the First Amendment and those groups of people making use of their power of speech 
to assert themselves and receive the protection of law. And yet we have this large movement of various groups in the United States, various ideological stripes that seem committed to the proposition that if what you're saying is so unpopular, at least within my in-group, that maybe you don't deserve First Amendment protection. And, and quite often, these are people who, who present themselves as the protectors of the vulnerable. You referred to Nat Hentoff, a great free speech champion and also a longtime colleague and friend of mine. Way back in the 1990s, I believe, early 1990s, he wrote a book called Freedom of Speech for Me, But Not for Thee, How the Left and Right in America Relentlessly Censor Each Other. With all due respect to Nat, his insight goes way beyond America. I think it is just part of human nature to uh, instinctively, intuitively want to protect speech that we agree with and want to suppress speech that we disagree with. It is very difficult for most people to look through a message they, they dislike and to understand that what is at stake is not the particular message, not the particular speaker, but an underlying principle that will ultimately redound to exactly the opposite uh, message. And one of my colleagues used a phrase which I think is very apt, the free speech golden rule. Uh, if we want to have freedom for the speech that we love, then we must defend freedom for the speech that we loathe. Uh, but it's it's difficult to make that point. And I think the best way to do it, Caleb, is the way that 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 you did, which is referring to counter examples. Uh, fortunately or unfortunately, our country is so diverse uh, so that on any topic, uh, I can find some community where point of view A is unpopular and being suppressed, and another community where not A is the unpopular position and is being suppressed. Let me cite as an example the most controversial and best-known, loathed and loved case that the ACLU, the organization I headed for many years, uh, handled. It's the so-called Skokie case. Just about everybody knows it. I can tell that, that you know it, uh, because it really embodies this uh, core principle that lawyers and judges in our country call viewpoint neutrality, that the government must remain neutral toward the viewpoint, idea, message, content of the speech, that it is for we, the people, to debate and refute and ignore, as, as the case might be, but it is not the government's uh, business to decide that certain disapproved viewpoints are illegitimate to express in our pluralistic uh, society. So this was a case that involved a group of neo-Nazis who wanted to peacefully demonstrate in Skokie, Illinois, a town near Chicago that had a large Jewish population. This was in the late 1970s. So many of the Jews in Skokie were Holocaust survivors. The ACLU, which staunchly supports human dignity and equality and could not more strongly oppose the Nazi ideology, nonetheless believe that they have a free speech right to express their loathsome 
system point of view, it was an easy case to win in the courts of law. The case went all the way up to the United States Supreme Court. Uh, We kept winning, but we really lost in the court of public opinion, including many ACLU members who resigned their membership. We lost 15% of our card-carrying members who cared so strongly about free speech that they joined the ACLU and yet illustrated this common human tendency to say, well, I support freedom of speech, except for this one particularly loathsome point of view. And I I think what's interesting is that uh, Supreme Court justices and other judges, uh, to my knowledge, without exception, consistently support that viewpoint neutrality principle. So we see on the current Supreme Court, despite their vast ideological differences on many constitutional law issues, are pretty much uh, unanimously supporting freedom for speech that is very controversial among the general public. Public. How do you explain that difference? And I think the answer is that the justices are schooled in law. They know the history of censorship. They know the history of free speech. And that's why it's been my mission to educate as many members of the public as possible about free speech principles and history, because I think the more you understand them, the more supportive you will become of them. Related to that, I know you've expressed concerns about sort of the cultural attitudes about speech in modern America, particularly among young people. And and around the world. Or these are worldwide phenomena. Sure. And but the United States is, you know, exceptional in a way with with respect to the First Amendment. What concerns you most about that? What gives you the most hope about getting people back to embracing that principle of, you know, tolerance? It's a challenge, as it is in every generation. Thomas Jefferson reportedly said, eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. Roger Baldwin, who was the principal founder of the ACLU, said, no fight for civil liberties ever stays won. And it's a challenge to get people to look through the immediate factual context for a free speech issue to look beyond a speaker or a message that they might well despise to see the underlying principle that is at stake. So uh, people will say, for example, why do you defend burning the American flag? That's an example of expression that has been deeply unpopular. Uh, particularly on the right end of the political spectrum, but even even more broadly, or from the left. Why do you defend Nazis? Why do you defend pornographers? Why do you defend disinformation? Recently, the ACLU filed a brief challenging as overly broad one of the judges' gag orders on Donald Trump. Why are you defending Donald Trump? And you have to say, no, we're not defending any of those people per se. We're not defending any of the expression per se. We are defending a principle which you are absolutely going to need. In fact, you already depend on it without without knowing it. You take it for granted until or unless you're, you're censored. And then I, for better or worse, can give examples where people who said messages that are congenial uh, to these young people um, where they have been suppressed. And in fact, they're That is, I think, one of the silver linings to the terrible, terrible, terrible cloud of the disaster in the Middle East. And I would not have wished this at all, but 
you know, it's here, so we'll, uh, you know, try to make uh, learning lessons of it in many ways and in any way that we can. And one is that um, certain progressives who were denying the existence of cancel culture or defending it uh, are now finding themselves on the other end of cancellation pressures when they are being threatened with loss of jobs and shaming and shunning because of controversial statements that they've made that are constitutionally protected, but not protected from other kinds of reprisals. So Matt may give people, I know it has from many conversations I've had with students and faculty members, been kind of an aha moment. Oh, maybe there is a problem with uh, private sector and social and cultural and social media cancellation. To what extent are universities, private universities, held to account when they make a public commitment to uh, upholding the First Amendment or the, the, the values of the, the First Amendment? Excellent question, and it contains an unstated premise, which I will make explicit because not every member of your audience will be familiar with it, Caleb, and that is that the First Amendment's free speech guarantee only applies to government. It literally, the First Amendment literally says, Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. That has been consistently interpreted to refer not only to Congress, but any government official, state, federal, or local. But it does not apply, uh, with one exception, it does not apply to private sector actors, including private universities. That said, most private universities, with the exception of some religious institutions, most of them have, as a voluntary matter, made a commitment to protect the same free speech and academic freedom principles that a public university would be constitutionally required to adhere to. And that creates a contractual obligation on the part of the private institution because faculty members and students who decided to take a job there or to enroll or matriculate there, did so counting on undertakings that freedom of speech and academic freedom would be adhered to. So an organization that I'm proud to be a senior fellow with, FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, which handles many cases of campus free speech, um, has won countless cases against private academic institutions on the basis of their contractual pledges to support academic freedom, free speech, and other constitution, what would be constitutional rights on a public campus. The Supreme Court's AFPF v. Bonta decision was uh, about the requirement that certain nonprofits hand over their donor lists to the government of California. And I would have thought that this case would have been a slam dunk, and uh, it turned out to have been a slam dunk because there was a case in the late 1950s, NAACP v. Alabama, about exactly the same issue, which was supporters of the NAACP in Alabama being compelled to essentially out themselves to the government. And that sort of caps a long line of speech in a political context cases, how do you evaluate where that's gone over the last, you know, 15 years or so? So the Supreme Court jurisprudence has been quite consistent, as you say, 
uh, Caleb, recognizing that there is, first of all, an implicit freedom of association that is protected by the First Amendment. And that very important historic case you mentioned, NAACP versus Alabama from 1958, is the first case in which the Supreme Court recognized that implicit right, saying that individuals' freedom of speech may not actually be exercised if the individuals are addressing a controversial topic. Uh, They may be chilled because they're afraid of punitive consequences that may be visited upon them. That was certainly a realistic fear for members of the NAACP or advocates of civil rights, opponents of Jim Crow in the Deep South at that time. So the Supreme Court has held in that case and consistently since then that not only do you have a right to associate with others in organizations that will amplify your message, your idea beyond what you as an individual could accomplish, but that you also have the right to do so anonymously, because if you are outed, to use your fine word, that may result in adverse consequences ranging from physical assaults uh, to losing jobs to uh, being socially shamed and shunned. All of these were realistic dangers that members or supporters of the NAACP were facing then. But there is a countervailing First Amendment free speech interest, the argument goes, in the rest of the public learning as a matter of freedom of access to information. What is the identity of the people who are supporting this organization, who are putting out this message? And in the context of political campaigns in particular, uh, the Supreme Court and, and, and other lawmakers have said there is a substantial weight, there is a First Amendment interest in, in inf- that kind of information. In the very first case in which the Supreme Court considered the constitutionality of campaign finance restrictions, Buckley versus Faleo, it balanced both of those competing First Amendment considerations. And it said, you know, it's very fact-specific, as, as, as all First Amendment free speech standards are. They're general standards, but how they apply really varies depending on the facts and circumstances. So you have to look at how important the disclosure is of particular contributions to particular causes on the one hand, and you also have to look at what the chilling effect would be on the other hand. So in one case, the Supreme Court said that the Socialist Workers Party did not have to disclose its membership because it was such a small party, it had so little impact on the political outcome that there really wasn't much public value in knowing who the people were who supported it. And for precisely the same reason, because it was so small and unpopular, there would be a big chilling effect on people actually joining that party if their names were disclosed. So the basic principles have remained the same since then. Nadine Strawson is author of the new book, Free Speech, What Everyone Needs to Know. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you please. And thank you for listening.